Greetings and salutations and welcome to another episode of the Structured Startup. Laurel, who do we have on tap today? Today, we are talking with Jeff Gale of Ticket Biscuit, and he is discussing guerrilla marketing, growth hacking, and other sales techniques, which actually corresponds with module nine in our structured startup course. That's wonderful. I, Jeff and I go way back. Uh, most recently in COVID, we both experimented with hairstyles and are probably still experimenting with hairstyles, which you can't see on a podcast. But growth hacking is a great topic for him because he understands content marketing better, I think, than anybody in the town does. He was one of the first to do it. And I've always appreciated his explanation of it. So I am really looking forward to this one. Laurel, are you excited? So excited. Let's get into it. Jeff Gale with Ticket Biscuit. The company that I'm with right now is uh, is a new private equity firm. So I'm not a, I'm not with a product company. I'm not running a company in a CEO role, CEO role per se. I am sourcing and diligencing investments for a small private equity group. I guess the experience that I can speak from in terms of you know sales and marketing and customer acquisition that sort of thing uh, comes primarily from my days at Ticket Biscuit which was a company that I founded in 2001 and ran until, uh, until it was acquired in 2017. Uh, so Ticket Biscuit was a ticketing and event management, event marketing platform. Um, we started off serving music venues and, uh, and working with music events and music promoters, and from there expanded into all types of event organizers and really carved out some interesting niches. By the end, uh, the end of my time there, I should say, we were working with thousands of children's dance studios across the country, um, which was a ticketing market that I had never considered when I started the company. But turns out it's a really great market because there are 15,000 dance studios across the U.S. and they all hold one or two or more recitals each year. And every one of those recitals is the hottest ticket in town because mom and dad have to get seats up front to take pictures of little Johnny or little Susie and... Um, so it turned out to be a great market for us. Uh, we also served tourist railroads, which was another industry, uh, entertainment industry that I didn't know existed. But it's um, short trains around the country that essentially provide train rides as entertainment, as opposed to you know commuter or freight rail or something like that. Uh, and those are very popular entertainment destinations for families as well. So we carved out a niche there and had a lot of success. But uh, selling tickets online and in the box office was uh, was the so was what our software did, and um, and helping helping our customers promote their events was um, was the other main service that we provided. So in the early days when you had just founded Ticket Biscuit, how did you stand out in order to talk to your customer so that they gained trust in you? Yeah. So differentiating your company um, is really important and often pretty hard to do. You know, at the end of the day, um, the sales and marketing message is always some flavor of we're going to save you time and make you money. But finding a way to say that differently or offer to implement that value proposition differently is super important. I don't know that there's any secret sauce for for differentiating yourself other than talk to prospective customers and find out what they dislike 
about how they're currently solving their problems. And it might be one of your competitors and, and you learn something that they dislike uh, uh, about one of your competitors. And that can form the basis for differentiation or find an unmet need. Talk to prospective customers and, and learn about a problem that they currently have no solution for. And then you can go to market saying, finally, there's a solution for this problem. Uh, and that's how you differentiate yourself. You're the first one to solve this problem. Um, and whether that's true or not, it's a good way to differentiate yourself. What sales techniques were most effective in building your platform? Uh, that's funny. I was just talking about this today with a portfolio company. During my time at Ticket Biscuit, I really saw the best practice in sales and marketing shift essentially from sales to marketing. You know, historically, sales is you go out and you sell your, you actively and sometimes aggressively sell your product to customers. And all of your efforts are focused around convincing them either that they need your product or that your product is better than a competitor's product or something like that. And the shift that I saw happen was instead of that aggressive direct sales approach, the best practice became create content, valuable content in the form of articles or these days podcasts or, or what have you, valuable content that can help your prospective customer uh, do their job better or improve their business in some way and release that content and, and get credited for that content so that when your customer, your prospective customer is in a buying mood or is in a buying time of their business, you're front of mind, you're top of mind because they've seen this content that you've released and, uh, and, and they've enjoyed it and hopefully they've benefited it benefited from it somehow. So it's less about, here's our product, here's why it's so great. And it's more about, here's, here are the best practices in your industry, or here's something to be thinking about. And you know, ideally, it ties back in some way to your product, but it's, it, it's an indirect sales message. Really, you just want to be a recognized value add to your prospective customer so that when the time comes to buy, you're the first one they think about. And that was the shift that I saw occur. Um, it also aligns really well with, uh, with automating your sales and marketing practice. Um, because instead of having a phone room full of people dialing for dollars all day long, you've got robots that are emailing for dollars more or less. And there are various ways of, of scoring your prospective customers in terms of their buying appetite, how close they are to buying, um, you know, what size customer they would be if they were to come on board various ways that you can profile your prospects during the process of, of this automated marketing and being able to identify when they are entering a buying phase. And at that point, you can employ your talented salespeople to, to start calling on them and being a little more aggressive or direct with selling the product. But really nurturing those prospects uh, using automation and by providing, providing value-added content, that's really the best practice these days. What was your message to your first customer? It sounds funny to say now, uh, but it was, hey, I heard you're thinking about doing some online ticketing. I can probably write some software that will do that. And I can probably charge you less uh, if I can maintain the ownership of it and go out and sell it to other venues. It doesn't sound terribly compelling when I say it now, but you know, luckily it was a, it was a prospect who was, who was close to the fold. Um, and, uh, and so they were willing to take a, 
take a chance on me. And it was a very early technology when I started. It's a much, much more competitive industry now. And uh, I don't think there's any way I could get away with that type of message these days. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I found a, a customer who I was already friendly with and said, hey, hey, take a chance on me and we'll both benefit. And it worked out. And what was your message like to your next 10 customers and the customers after that? I like the way that you've divided it up into sort of those three cohorts of customer number one, customers two through 10, and then beyond that, because the message does need to change between those three groups. Um, you know, the first one, like mine was, I think can be very informal, particularly if you have a customer uh, or a prospect that's very close to you, um, friendly with you, or, or that you already have a relationship with. The next 10, you, you basically highlight the success that you've had with the first customer. Like, look, customer XYZ is using it. They're having great success. You're welcome to call them and, and hear their experience. Yeah, we're new, but we're not brand new. We're proven at this point. We've got a great case study. Um, and by coming on board early, you've got the opportunity to, to shape our offering. You know, we're really going to value your feedback. We're looking for customers um, who want to take a more active role in helping us develop this product to meet your needs. And that's not the type of, uh, of vendor relationship that all customers want, but they are the most valuable to have as your sort of second through 10 customer, because you do need that feedback, hopefully constructive feedback from customers who represent the market at large. You know, there is some risk, I think, in, in developing your product around early customers, because if they happen to have needs that are unique to themselves, then you can end up building a product that very few customers want. So you do need to make to take care that the feedback you're getting is from customers who really do represent a lot more customers like them. Because you always want to be building your product for the market and not for a particular customer or a small group of customers. That starts to look a lot more like a service business. And I think most entrepreneurs are more interested in building a product business. Uh, even if it's a productized service. Um, but still, and I think regardless, even if it is a service business, you want to be building your offerings for a large market and not for a very narrow or esoteric group uh, that you'll quickly exhaust. So uh, that's customers two through 10. You know, I think by the time you've got 10 plus customers, at that point, hopefully you've found product market fit. Not to say that the product won't continue to evolve after that, but but you've built something that really does have broad appeal. And so you can take the lessons that you've learned from the first 10 or 11 customers, distill them down into marketing messages uh, or memes or advertisements or blog posts, uh, and really start to address the market at large. I think, you know, maybe it's not the first 10 or 11 customers, maybe it's the first 50, but regardless, once you get, once you get to a certain point, I think it, you're broadcasting your your marketing message a lot more than you are having a lot of two-way conversations, a lot of in-depth conversations. Because again, there are not a lot of customers who want to spend that much time with you providing feedback and that sort of thing. You know, Most of them just want to buy a great product at a great price and have it work. But at least in the beginning, you do need those, those customers who are willing to really deeply engage with you on the product and the offering. I was speaking with someone a while ago who said that as an entrepreneur, you'll pretty much always lose your first customer and that you probably should <laughs> lose your first customer as your business grows. Yeah. 
that makes sense. It didn't hold true uh, with Ticket Biscuit. I guess we were the exception that proved the rule. Very first customer was a customer beyond when Ticket Biscuit was acquired. Um, uh, so I was happy about that. Uh, there were some rocky times. Um, you know, they considered firing us. We considered firing them. Uh, but we sort of evolved together and learned from each other. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's probably more true than not. What communication channels did you use to deliver that message to your first customer, your first, you know, 10 customers? So the message is your, is your ever flowing fountain of content, of value added content. And that lives probably on your blog, on your company blog. But then you're using all of your social media channels uh, and all communication channels that you can get a hold of to drive traffic to that message back to your blog. There are probably some benefits to hosting content natively on LinkedIn and or Facebook. But uh, if you do that, you certainly want the original copy of that content to live on your blog as well. And so you're using the automation platforms to drip out emails to prospects. And those emails will sort of tease the article, tease the piece of content, and then always a link to learn more or, or read on or something like that that's going to drive that traffic back to your blog. And so the message, you know, that type of teaser message will vary by length and, and by style, depending on which communication channel you're using. You know, it's, it, it might be a little more lighthearted on, on TikTok or something like that, or Instagram, uh, or maybe a little more, a little more buttoned up in a LinkedIn post or something like that. But ultimately you're just trying to drive that traffic to that content on your website where you can collect a little more information about the customer and, and start to profile them and gauge their, their level of interest or how close they are to actually making a purchase decision. Is there anything you would add about best practices for crafting messages and delivering them when you're in the early stages of a company? You know, I think that that first customer, you really can be very informal and it probably has to be somebody who is friendly with you. You won't find a lot of, assuming that you're a B2B company, you won't find a lot of businesses who are willing to take a chance on a company with no customers. You know, being the first customer can certainly be a scary prospect, especially if you're trying to solve a mission critical thing for them, um, or maybe not even mission critical, but just very important. And then that, you know, that next group of customers, there's a there's a delicate balance between a diplomatic version of take a chance on us, between that message and the message of we're being choosy with which customers we bring on now. Because we really want customers who have the ability and desire to help us hone this product. So there's as much of uh, we're interviewing you to be a customer for us as, as there is we're trying to sell you our product. And I think that that, that exclusivity, I think that can add some appeal to customers to, through, whatever you know, sort of makes the customer or the prospect feel a little special. Oh, wow. They, they really want us to help them influence this product. That can be a subtle but powerful sales technique. That, that was fabulous. I, I really enjoyed that. The, the hacking, the, 
the content marketing machine that he was able to create, it just uh, it, it it reminded me of you know trying to start uh, start building a book of business when I was young. I remember Constant Contact, which now seems so antiquated. We use Constant Contact back in the day. We were one of the first people to do it, and we could actually email more people than anybody else before they figured out all the spam bad stuff. And it was uh, a great boon for us. So I don't know what tomorrow's growth hack is going to be. I guess that's the excitement of, of entrepreneurship, but it is, it's going to be something and fun to figure it out. I, I can't wait to see uh, which way companies go with this. Uh, Laurel thoughts. Well, talking to Jeff reminds me how people are sort of constantly asking, like, you know, should I blog? Um, what do I need to put on social media? Do I need a Facebook page? And the answer is that everyone needs some form of content marketing because that content becomes the way that you are a resource and really a trusted advisor to your customer. You're showing them through your content that you can help them solve problems so that, as Jeff says, when they're ready to make a purchase or when they're ready to buy, they're going to go to the person that they already trust to help them. Trust is so key. It is It is the only way you can sell is if people believe what you, believe you as the the product seller, service seller that you are. Uh, good stuff. Well, let's let Mr. Gale take us out. Yeah, we talked about content and automation. I, I mean, I think those are the main tools of of a startup's sales and marketing process. You know, a personal regret in Ticket Biscuit is I waited too long to really invest in sales and marketing. And I don't know if that was just being a first-time founder and not confident enough in my offering that I was hesitant to invest dollars in sales and marketing early on. I wish I had done it sooner. It may not be the most capital efficient way to, to invest heavily in sales and marketing early on. And I'm not suggesting that one should necessarily, but you got to invest more than nothing. And you've, and you've got to move the sales process away from the founder early on. You know, it, it's a red flag, at least from an investor's perspective, and probably should be from the founder's own perspective, when the founder or the CEO is still doing the bulk of the sales, you know, beyond customer 20 or something like that. You've got to get that knowledge and that talent out into the rest of the organization and build a sales organization that can stand on its own so that the founder can focus on other higher level things. You know, not to say that uh, that a founder or a CEO can't be heavily focused on sales. They certainly should, but but the people executing those sales, uh, managing the nurturing of the leads, closing the deals, those need to move beyond the founder fairly quickly, I believe. And you also need to get a, an understanding early on of what your customer acquisition cost is, and you can't do that if you're not spending any money on on customer acquisition. You'll probably find that uh, that early on your customer acquisition cost is too high, and then you'll find ways to optimize that, get more bang for your buck. You'll start learning what works and what doesn't work, and you can't learn any of those lessons. You can't make any of that progress if you don't try things, and trying things typically involves some form of investment. So as soon as you've got a, a pre-seed round, as soon as you've got a little money to play with, you need to start investing in sales and marketing and doing testing. You know, A-B testing within a channel and A-B testing across channels, find out what works and start to optimize that, that customer acquisition cost, or at least start to understand it so that you can budget for it 
Yeah, I, I still see a lot of startups that are very hesitant to spend money on sales and marketing early on, even after they've got 10 or 15 customers. And my suggestion to them is always, hey, you've got to place some bets. You know, you've got to put some money on the board and start to see what works. Hopefully your listeners will find that helpful. <laughs> 